I think I'm supposed to be up here. My name is uh, David Miller, for those of you that don't know me and uh, my wife, Esther. And we have been missionaries uh, for this church in Chile, South America. And we've been home now for a year and a half. And uh, this thing's off, right? We've been home now for uh, a year and a half, and a lot of what we've been doing, as I think most of you know, is we've been working to expand the role of Surge, our, our mission agency, in Latin America. And that's uh, going really well. Uh, I've worked myself out of a job, sort of. <laughs> uh, the staff... If you read our update that we sent out yesterday or the day before, the staff at the mission is really taking up that role and running with it. What I, the reason I'm mentioning this, we're, my wife and I are actually the featured missionaries uh, of this month, so that's why I wanted to give a little bit of a spiel today. Because on Tuesday, uh, Esther and I are leaving to go down to Chile for the rest of the month. Of July, just about. Esther will be back on like the 20th, but I'll be back around the 28th. And we're going down there for two reasons primarily. Well, we have a number of reasons, but the two main reasons are that we're going down to check up on our colleagues that are down there, the folks that we were working with. They went back. Their furlough or their home mission assignment ended in February, and they were able to get back down there. And so we're going down there to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, which I don't actually have a lot of concern about. Um, and just to encourage them and be with them, we just love them and, and miss them. The other reason that we're going down and that I want to share with you, our home church, is that we are really wrestling with what, the ne- what our next steps are uh, because of family stuff. So... Uh, we need your prayers and as we go because we're really going also to sort of lay it out before the Lord in that place. What are you calling us to do? What are you calling Esther and I to do? My uh, contract, if you will, my time with the mission, our, our home assignment comes to an end in December. So we're, you know, we're feeling like we need to know Okay, am I going to work at Home Depot, or am I going to go back? <laughs> I'm open to that. I mean, actually, it sounds very attractive to me right now. Uh, or am I going to go, are we going to go back down there, uh, or what are we going to do? So if you would really be praying for us, we would really appreciate that over this month of July. Every time you see our smiling faces up there on the screen, you can remember that we're down there be praying for us. Our son Ben is going to be here, so you can be praying for him too, as he's, I'm sure he's just going to be crying every night, uh, missing us and stuff, so be praying for him. Well, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. I've asked uh, Tim Swihart if he would come and read the scriptures for us, and uh, he was really happy to do that. Come. Is this on? Oh, oh. 
Howdy, y'all. If you wouldn't mind turning with me to uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, and I'll be reading until verse 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may be open. The door to him, they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food, at the proper time, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This was the word of the Lord. the children are going right. I, uh, some years ago, you, some of you might remember seeing this, I saw a bumper sticker and it said, Jesus is coming back and boy is he P.O.'d. <laughs> um, one of the fundamental tenets of our Christian faith is that Jesus is coming back. Uh, that he's coming back in bodily form, and he's coming to this earth. And while there's an element of truth in that, in that bumper sticker, there is truth in that bumper sticker, uh, Jesus clarifies, I think, in this passage that we have before us, what his real intent and heart is for his return. And he talked quite a bit about his return when he was here on the earth the first time. And much of it is couched in um, some of the warnings that you see here and the blessings. This passage is somewhat unique in that we have, he starts off with a blessing and then he moves to some warnings for us. And so what, what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to give us a, a fuller picture of his return and, and of what it means for our daily lives 
You know, we've, uh, I know many of you know that Christians have fought over the years about when Jesus is coming and how he's coming back and, you know, what the schedule's going to be and how it's going to work out. And most of that wrangling among us, I believe, has been misplaced because it misses the point of what this text is about. And it's simply that Jesus could come at any moment And he longs for us to be ready for his return. He longs for us to be ready. That's what's in this passage, if you look at it closely. And you'll see that, um, well, let me say this first. uh, This sermon is set in a series of sermons that we've been going through as a congregation in Luke. So we're turning again to Luke's gospel in chapter 12. This, this text is a series of three brief parables that Jesus tells with regard to his return. And they really focus, they really focus on one thing, which is true of all parables. Jesus is teaching one thing, typically, in his parables. He's not teaching you know, several things. He has one thing in mind. That one thing is really what you find in verse 40. That's the heart of this text. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. And he he wants us to be ready. So I have two points in my sermon. Uh, The first one is that the Son of Man is coming back. That's pretty basic. That's my, the first thing I want to flush out for us. And then secondly, he wants us to be ready for his return at an unexpected hour. Real simple. What does that mean? Well, the first thing I want us to see, and, and it comes again from verse 40, is that it is the Son of Man who is returning. The Master who returns to his house is the Son of Man. Jesus uses this phrase, the Son of Man, of himself, to to refer to himself more than any other phrase in the New Testament. It's a very interesting study from the Scriptures. And so I'm going to do something today with you all that I don't don't typically do. uh, And that is I want to jump around and look at a couple of passages of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just listen um, as we look at several Christians. Uh, passages of scripture. The first time the expression, the son of man, appears in the scriptures is in Psalm 80. And it's set in, it's, it's written by Asaph. Asaph was a priest and a, and a songwriter under David, the king, who was, David represents sort of the peak of Israel's uh, history. And Asaph was a priest under David, and he lived quite a long time. They, um, you know, some scholars believe that he lived actually long enough to see Solomon's temple built and was a part of that worship. But in Psalm 80, you find this in verse uh, 17. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. This psalm is about, is about anticipation. It's the same thing that we have in this text. In Luke 12, it's a sense of anticipation that God has planted 
a vine. You'll see that back in, uh, in verse uh, 15. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Uh, verse 15, they have burned it with fire, this vine. They have cut it down. They, uh, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. Uh, so there's a sense of anticipation that God planted this vine representing his people in the Old Testament, and the nations came and they ravaged it. Well, they lived under its shade for a time, and then they ravaged it and turned on it and burned it and tried to cut it down. And so the psalm writer Asaph has this sense of anticipation that God has appointed this son of man who is going to come and make everything right. It's the same thing that Jesus is referring to here. If you move through, you move ahead in the scriptures, the next time that you find uh, the Son of Man expression is in in, uh, Ezekiel. And I'm not going to take time to look at Ezekiel because that's where it's, it's all over the place. But in Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel the Son of Man. He's continually referring to him as Son of Man in that book, and I'll probably come back to point out why I think that is a little bit later. I want to move ahead. The next time that you see this phrase used is then by Daniel. And it's really in Daniel chapter 7. If you, if you want to turn there, you can. Daniel chapter 7 is a, pro- a prophetic vision that Daniel has while Daniel's a prophet of Israel in exile in Babylon. The people of Israel have been kicked out of their land. The temple has been torn down, and they are in a foreign land. And Daniel is uh, actually working in the government, and he has this vision of the Son of Man that's found in verse 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, listen, listen to this text, there came one like the Son of Man. Now listen, this, this Son of Man is somebody unusual. Look at how he's described. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is God. And he was presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, this Son of Man, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This guy's unusual. He's able to stand before the throne of God, which no son of man should be able to do. And then he's given this kingdom. Very special individual. So you have that, if you have that background in mind, and then you come to the Gospels, and you read Jesus and the accounts of Jesus, and he is referring to himself as the Son of Man. I can tell you that for every good Jewish believer, and especially for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, when he calls himself the Son of Man, that carried a lot of meaning for them. 
They knew this prophecy in Daniel. They were looking for this guy to come and to uh, kick you-know-what in Jerusalem, get Rome out and get them off their backs. They were anticipating this guy, and Jesus is basically saying, I'm him. I am he. I am the Son of Man. Powerful. He's the one ruling over all nations, languages, and tongues forever. Now, one of the interesting things that I discovered in getting ready for this sermon is that when you really read through the Gospels and look at when Jesus uses this expression of himself, it falls into two categories pretty, pretty consistently. He uses it to talk about judgment, himself being the judge, or he uses it in connection with what we call his passion is having come to earth, humbled himself in order to die for sin, and he's going to the cross. If you want to see this in the same gospel that we're we're looking at, in chapter 9 of Luke, you um, you see this in two verses here. Verse 22 is one of the verses, and it says... This is, this is referring to him coming in mercy and with compassion, lowly like a lamb for slaughter. He strictly charged and commanded them not uh, to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, and be raised. The Son of Man, I'm sure his disciples heard this and they, they, they were totally not tuned in to that part of the Son of Man's work. The next place you find this in the same chapter is in verse 26, just a couple of verses later. And look at how the tune kind of changes. For whatever, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him... Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels? That's the judgment. That's when he's coming in judgment. And so you see, the point that I'm trying to get to here as you look at Jesus' life and you look at how he refers to himself as the Son of Man is that Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back He's not coming back. He's, he's already come as the lamb. He's already come meek and mild and lowly and humbly and almost in secrecy. You know, he's often telling people, don't tell anyone. Don't tell them that I did this. <laughs> he's already come like that. He's not coming like that the next time, which is what we're waiting for now. He's coming the next time in a, I forget what rock and roll band sings, Blaze of Glory, but that's how he's coming, (laughs) in a blaze of glory. He's not coming lowly. But you see, he's, he, 
he's coming back in a blaze of glory. But you see, he, and this is my second point, he wants us to be, he wants his servants to be waiting and ready. He wants that. That's the point of this. He wants us to be, first of all, he wants us to be ready to go. That's, uh, that's what you find in the opening verse of this text. Uh, keep your, how do they translate it here? Um, verse 35, chapter 12, sorry about this. Um, he says, the way they translated this in the Bible that I'm using, it says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. The uh, literal translation of that is keep your loins girded. That's, that's a reference to people that wore long flowing robes, which they did in the ancient Near East. And it is preparation for travel. This is traveling language. Pull your pants up <laughs> and get your flashlight out. We're going. We're moving. That's what this is. Um, and Jesus wants us to be ready to go. When he comes back, we're going somewhere. This is also the language, by the way, that was used of the Israelites in the Passover. When the Passover is instituted, the, the Israelites are instructed to eat the Passover meal with their staff in their hand and their loins girded up. They're to be ready to go. Because when the angel of death comes, they're going to be expelled out of the land. It's the same idea that Jesus is carrying over here. We're to be ready to go. My grandfather, when I was a little boy, he used to say to us around the supper table, hurry up and eat, and then we're going to go. Oh, where are we going? To bed. <laughs> when Jesus comes back, he, he's, he wants to go with us somewhere. You see, he's coming. Other scriptures say that he's coming to take us out. He's coming to take us out of here. Uh, I won't go into this. I mean, I do believe when he also talks about the new heavens and the earth, he's, uh, you know, the new creation, I think he's referring actually to this earth. So I don't, I'm not quite sure how that works out. I'm not into all those theories. I want to be ready. <laughs> we need to be ready when the Son of Man comes to take us out. But you see, he... He also wants us to be, um, he wants us to be ready to go, uh, but he also wants us to be ready all the time. And that's in verse 38. If he comes in the second or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The Spanish Bible translates that second and third watch Medianoche o de madrugada. What does that mean, Tom? Does, does Tom know? Yeah, or at midnight. So the second and third hour is midnight or the wee hours of the morning, two, three o'clock. He wants us to be ready all the time. I don't know that this necessarily means that Jesus is coming back at night. I don't think that's the intent of what he's trying to say here. He wants us to be ready all the time for him to come. Another thing he says here is uh, in verse uh, 39, well, he, he says that he could come, coming at, 
coming in the middle of the night, I think, could also be a reference to just coming when the hour is dark. We live in a dark hour. You feel that in the world. He could come in the dark hour. But also, um, he says in verse 39 that he could come like a thief in the night. You know, he refers to this in other passages as well. Uh, And again, the point is that we're to be ready. Have any of you ever been broken into? Your homes have ever been broken into? Okay. Yeah, we've been broken into three times. And the first time it happened, we were, at, uh, we were sleeping, and we weren't ready. <laughs> well, actually, I was sort of ready. But um, I slept through the whole thing, which is unbelie- was unbelievable. I came downstairs in the morning. All the lights were on. The doors were open. Our closets were thrown all over the place. They were down in our basement, had thrown stuff around, went out the basement door. I didn't hear a thing. Esther has been forever grateful that I didn't hear anything because I had a shotgun in the house at that time. And I think I probably would have used it. And then I would have been the one probably going to jail. But I didn't wait for them to come. I didn't know they were coming, and I wasn't ready. That's the point. Jesus is not not saying he's a thief. He's Again, his point is... If you know when he's coming, you're going to be ready. You're going to be ready for him to come. He wants us to be ready because he could come at any moment, and he's coming as the Son of Man. He's not coming as the Lamb. And so he wants us to be ready for that. And then he says that there's blessing for being ready. Very interesting. You know, the first half of this text is about blessing. Jesus is saying there's blessing for the servants that are ready. There's blessing for the servants that are waiting. And there's blessing because he he wants us to be ready to go. He wants us to be ready all the time. But he wants us to be ready because he wants to meet with us. That's the point of this. He wants to be with us. And he wants us to be ready And anticipating that. And so you see, Jesus is coming to take us out in order to be with him. He's not taking you out just so you don't have to pay your federal income taxes. Or he's not taking you out just to, well, he is taking you out to make your life really easy. But he's not, his purpose is fellowship. He wants us with him. And so you see, You find in verse 36, the second half of verse 36, you find this language of him standing at the door and knocking. Um, Come from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds ready that when he knocks on the door to come home, they're ready. This is, you know, this is all language that's a little bit strange for us because most of us here don't have big households with servants and all that that are just waiting to, you know, to wait on us. But probably most of you here are servants. <laughs> so, you know, you understand the servant. If you're a worker, how many working people do we have here? You understand what it is to be a worker. And Jesus is saying that there's a blessing when you're anticipating the master coming and, you, and he knocks and you open the door right away. 
This is a very familiar uh, motif with Jesus because you find it again from him actually after he has ascended and he shows John, the apostle, a vision in Revelation. John writes at the beginning of Revelation to seven churches of Asia Minor and the church of Laodicea is one in which you find this passage. He says, I'll I'll flip to it, uh, Revelation chapter 3. He first of all kind of, he kind of lambasts the church of Laodicea. Uh, It's a lot like the church in the United States today. Um, And he says, uh, those whom I love, verse 19 of Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why? Why is he knocking? If if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's fellowship. That's, that's eating together in the ancient Near East was a way of, of building bonds. It was a way of affirming people. It was a way of embracing that they were yours, that that you were, and you belong to them. He wants to eat with us. And so you see, this is language of intimacy. Both of these passages, it's interesting, is referring to Christian. It's supposed to be believers. We usually think of, you know, we see that painting of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and I was always brought up to think that's, that in the churches I grew up in, they always used that for altar calls, you know, to get people to come up front. You know, he's knocking on your heart's door. Come up and receive Jesus and be saved. He's talking to the church in both of these passages. And he's saying, I'm coming, and there's blessing in opening the door and receive me. He wants to come in and eat with you. He wants you to be ready to receive him. Isn't that glorious? This son of man who could tear your head off. Actually, we'll get to that in the next part. (laughs) He wants to come in and sit down and have tea and jam. (laughs) So rich. It's so glorious. But you see, so you have this intimate moment. Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples to be ready and how he he longs to commune with them and be with them. And in typical fashion, Peter speaks up and says something stupid. When I I left uh, the the New Life Northeast Church and came back, uh, you know, really in a very hurting way, the very first thing that I did, ministry-wise, was I got talked into teaching the high school Sunday school class here at the church. This would have been about 19, uh, or, uh, yeah, 2003, 2004. I don't know if any of the kids that were in that class are here today. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I've seen, I see any of them. But I told these kids right up front, the very first class, that I believed in stupid questions. And that there are stupid questions. (laughs) This question of Peter's is kind of one of those questions. Uh, It's kind of a, what his question really is, who, me? 
is this about me? Are you, are you, talking, to, are you talking to all the plebes out there? Uh, or does this have anything to do with us? It's kind of the same kind of thing that you find when Jesus is teaching uh, about loving your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And one of the scribes of the Pharisees says, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, does this, who, me? Does this include me? Am I supposed to be in this too? Well, Jesus, who is ever patient, uh, much more patient than I am, uses this opportunity, the opportunity of this question, then to drive home uh, that at his second coming, he is coming back to call us all to account, all of us. Jesus uses the word manager here. Uh, and as you read through this, um, as you read through this passage, you could, it's pretty easy to think that Jesus is probably talking here about the church. He's talking about managers that are left in charge to, to um, feed their people at the proper time, to give food at the proper time to their people. Very interesting phrase. Um, and, and, of course, it's Peter that asked this question. You know, Peter's the, you know, the number one disciple. He's the one at the top of the rank in the disciples. So Peter's asking this. And so it's easy to sort of think, well, Jesus is talking to the church, and he's talking to people who are officers in the church, and, uh, you know, so he's, that's what he's uh, really going after. And, and indeed, that's part of it. But I think, I, I don't want to let anybody off the hook here. And um, what he has to say here, I think he is really talking here about anyone who holds position in which they have responsibility over other people. Uh, they have responsibility to give portions of food at their proper time. In other words, you're, your role as an overseer in whatever capacity you're in is for the purpose of bringing life and health and strength uh, to those that are under you. You see, Jesus is the man, he's the, is this son of man. He's ruling over everything. He's ruling over the civil government. He's ruling over your household. And he's ruling over the church. I personally believe those are the three spheres of government that God has ordained. The civil government, the family, and the church. And he's ruling over all those things. And so in whatever role you're in today, uh, if you're here as a head of a household, uh, if you're here as an officer in the church, like me, this is me, um, I'm not over a particular church, but I have sort of a at-large role, if you will. Or if you're a head of state. It doesn't matter if you're a governor, if you're a business person, or if you're a father, or you're a Supreme Court judge. Jesus is coming back, and he is going to tear up. And he is not going to take it easy. It's really interesting, uh, the language that he uses down here for me. I used to be a meat cutter. So he's talking down here about cutting people into pieces and assigning them to a place of the unbelievers. For me as a meat cutter, that's like meat cutter language. What, that, what he's saying is uh, he doesn't care who you are. When you come back, if you're not feeding 
people if you're not bringing life in the role that God has given you as an overseer in whatever capacity, he's going to turn you into lunch meat. He is going to dice you up and assign you to a place of suffering. It's a very serious warning in response to Peter saying, who, who me? Oh, yes, Peter, you. You see, we have a tendency to live, we have a tendency to live as though Jesus came to earth, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into the, high, into, into the sky, and then he vaporized. That's how we live, isn't it? I mean, does this cut any of you here? in your roles in life? Are you waiting? Do you have this sense of anticipation of being ready for him to come? Of waiting at the door for him to come? I don't. So how do we get ready? Well, I could turn the uh, sermon into an interactive sermon here. (laughs) I'd like to, how do we get ready? I'd like to illustrate it with two stories. And I don't think I have time to tell both of them. (laughs) I'll let you vote. (laughs) I have a story about uh, Maria, the sexual sinner. That's the first story. Or the story about the Holy Spirit burning the house down. Which one do you want to hear? <laughs> Burning the house down? Anybody from Maria, the sexual sinner? Okay. <laughs> I'll do Maria, the sexual sinner. It comes from, a, it's a story from Chile. Um, we, when we were in Chile, we ended up befriending a pastor uh, there that we that was really responding to the gospel. This is a man that uh, John knows, Pastor John knows, and some of you here would definitely know. Russ, Russ, you would know this guy. He lived a little further south in Chile, but we went down there and we put, we put up uh, a house for him at one point, and then we built an expansion on his church. And he really had preaching gifts, and he was really responding to the gospel. I first met him in 2003, I believe it was. And we got to know his whole family. And at the, at the time that I met this family, or we met this family, uh, the team from the church here that went down, uh, I think his daughter, I'm going to call her Maria, was uh, about 14 years old. And over the course of being there for putting that building up, uh, I I was really attracted to her in the sense that she seemed like she was really tuned in and turned on. And she just was a sweetheart and and was very engaging. And then over the course of our years being down there and and continuing to hang out with this pastor, and we did another project for him and so forth, we got, got to be pretty close to this family. Well, you jump forward about uh, eight or... 10 years, and just about a year before we left Chile, we got the horrible news um, that this whole family, 
the pastor, the mother, Maria, and her brother, who were were adults now, were all involved in sexual sin. All of them. It was heartbreaking. And Chip and I, and our brother, you know, the the pastor went through discipline, which discipline in the Presbyterian Church in Chile basically means you get your hand cut off, uh, and you get cut off. And Chip and I determined that we were going to continue to pursue him because we really believe that the gospel always moves us toward the sinner. So we decided that we were going to continue to pursue him, and that was going to cost us. We had to travel. It's not cheap to travel in Chile. We were going to travel down to see him five or six hours. Gas is $8 a gallon in Chile when I talk about it being costly. So um, we were pursuing him, and, uh, and in the course of actually John's ministry uh, in Chile, there was a little revival that broke out. Some of you may know that. And one of the side things that happened was Maria's, one of Maria's friends showed up at the conference that John was speaking at. And she knew about Maria's sexual sin. And she could not keep quiet about it anymore and came to us. We advised her she needed to go back to Maria, encourage her to come forward about the lifestyle that she had gotten engaged in. And uh, she did that. Uh, I, I say this just to encourage you all. Her response was, I, I will. I want to talk to Pastor David. It was so hard. I, uh, I went to her, and she was very broken and was responsive, and she began then to move. And the, and the family fell apart, and the wife went to Argentina. The one son was running. But pa- the pastor and Maria came back to Jesus, and it was ugly. I mean, it's, now it's not perfect, but, you know, they were, they were in it. At one point, I was following up with them, uh, and I went back down, and this was after the family had really gone through a lot of turmoil. It was a couple of years later, and I was meeting. I decided to get together with Maria, and she had a young friend that she was discipling (laughs) that she brought with her to sit and talk with me one afternoon just to find out where she was doing, what, uh, you know, how she was doing. Well... Chip had a, some of you here are familiar with evangelism explosion and the diagnostic questions. You know, if you were to die tonight to stand before the Lord and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what what would be your response? Well, Chip has a real adulterated version of that diagnostic question. And it goes like this. Every one of you here have a sin that you are very, very ashamed of. I want you to think about that sin. Now, you are in the midst of practicing that sin, and Jesus comes back. What's your response? Well, I gave this to Maria and her friend. I know that you guys have sins in your life that you're very ashamed of. I'm assuming you have things that you know, are beyond even what I know. Okay, you're in the midst of that sin. 
and Jesus comes back, what is your response? And Maria's response was, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. That was her response. I stood up, I leaned over the table, and I grabbed her head, and I kissed her. She got it. She's ready. Do you hear me? She's ready. She's looking for the master to come. It's not that her life is perfect and she has everything in order, but when she hears the knock at the door, her response is, Help me, Jesus. Come to me. I have no place else to go. I have nowhere else to turn. My life is a wreck. I'm a horrible manager. But I'm waiting for you to come, and I'm waiting for you to make this heart right and every heart around me right. That's being ready for Jesus to come. You have nowhere else to go in your life. And that's what he's calling us to. And you see, if that is your attitude, the master himself, the Lord of the earth, will sit down and he himself will come in. He will gird up his loins and he will wash your feet and he will sit down. He will have you sit down and he will come and serve you. And that brings us to this table. This table represents that for our faith. I'm going to invite the elders if they'll come forward and, uh, and our music team as we move to, the, to the, the supper. If you have the kind of readiness that I just explained, this table is for you and I am, I am here ministering in Jesus' name to you. And I want you to picture him. You're seated, and he is coming to minister these elements to you. Do we have enough guys, I guess? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I was distracted. We'll be fine. Jose's here. He seats you down in this table, and he gives himself to you. He serves. He serves you by his death, with which these elements represent to our faith. You know, we have different traditions maybe here among us, Christian traditions, and some of you maybe grew up in a tradition where these elements were somehow magically transformed and became the body of Christ. We do not believe that's what's happening here. Some of you may believe that these elements uh, somehow or another contain the presence of Jesus in them and he's around them and under them. Uh, we don't believe that. And some of you probably have grown up in churches where this is just simply a, rem- a memorial service and we remember that Jesus died for us. It's more than that. <laughs> Jesus is here in a special way as your faith engages in what these elements represent. And so if your faith is alive and you're waiting, and when you hear the knock at the door, you know your house is not in order, but you throw the door open because you don't have anywhere else to go. These these elements are for, for you. If that's not where your heart is at, you're not sure that Jesus is 
who he says he is. You're not sure he's the son of man. You're not sure that he's coming back. You don't know that he died, and you don't think he died for you. These elements are not for you. And this is a table at which you can do business with Jesus. It's actually a table at which we all do business with Jesus because we do need to be examining ourselves. Are we ready? Am I waiting for the door to open? Let me uh, start by asking God to bless this time together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Son whom you sent. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us alone. Um, Not only did Jesus come and accomplish the work of redemption by his death and resurrection, not only is he coming back, but in the meantime, he's, he's given us his spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you confirm to our hearts as we participate in this by faith that we belong to you, that we are ready, that, that, our, that, that, we, that we are ready to see you and we long to commune with you. And may you, by your spirit, uh, commune with us in this hour. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.